welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today, we have a great interview coming up with Robert Tyndall and Susanna Bustos on snake magic. What do you think snake magic is, folks? Stay tuned, and you're going to find out. First, a little talk on news and notes in psychology and medicine. There are two economists who are gaining a lot of attention in Washington, D.C. right now, Emmanuel Says and Thomas Piketty. They've spent the last decade tracking the incomes of the poor, the middle class, and the rich in countries across the world. More than anything else, their work shows that the top earners in the United States have taken a bigger and bigger share of overall income over the last three decades, with inequality nearly as acute as it was before the Great Depression. You know, we've been talking about that a lot on this show in maybe the last five years, haven't we? And now, here is scientific validation coming to us from these economists. And as it turns out, these economists, the work of these economists, is being referred to uh, in Washington and in the White House. According to them, the United States is getting accustomed to a completely crazy, they call it crazy level, of inequality. He says people say that reducing this inequality is radical. These two economists say that tolerating the level of inequality in the United States is radical. In other words, what we're getting used to, folks, is something that's radical, something that, that's just that's unacceptable, and it's creating huge problems in the United States. Let me give you one example on a report just came in from New York City. In New York City, the number of people classified as poor in 2010 has gone up to 21%. 21% of New York are now categorized as poor folks. And the recession and the sluggish economy have made it even worse on children. More than one in four under 18 in our country are living in poverty. What does this do to our health? What does this do to our attitudes? What does it do to the spirit of our people? What do you all think about that? What do you all think about that? What does it mean to live a life that, that is, is so unequal? It turns out that in recent years, in the last seven years actually, the 90% of the population have increased their earning power in seven years, have increased their earning power by 4%. Whereas the people at the top, the 1% that you hear, the one percenters, the 1% have increased their income by 94%. Should I repeat that? From 2000 and 2007, incomes for the bottom 90% of earners rose by 4%. 2000 and 
Income for the top 1% increased by 94%. I mentioned a couple of young people from Denmark. Did I mention this to you? This story before. But I met a, a young couple from Denmark, and they, they, they looked at me with the most innocent of eyes and asked me, what has happened to your country? What has happened to your country, they're asking. Do we know? What do we each think what has happened to our country? In that line, some people, or maybe a similar line, I should say, some people are asking, what has happened and what is happening to our consciousness? Two of the people who are asking that question, what's going on, what's happening with our consciousness, are Robert Tyndall and Susanna Bustos. Robert Tyndall is a writer, a classical guitarist, a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. He's a traveler and a person who sees pilgrimage as a reawakening to our ancestral roots and an antidote to what he calls creeping monoculturalism. We'll find out what he means by that during this uh, interview. His work explores the crossing of frontiers into other cultures and states of consciousness. Besides his personal narrative of his journey into the vanishing realm of Amazonian shamanism in The Jaguar That Roams the Mind, and his various articles on the practice of vegetalismo, we're going to find out what vegetalismo is, he's, uh, he's made pilgrimage to various places in South America as well as into the Himalayas. Robert holds two master's degrees in English literature and the other in teaching English to speakers of other languages, TESOL. That's interesting. Now, his wife, Dr. Susanna Bustos, worked for over 10 years as a psychologist in Chile before receiving a scholarship from her country to conduct her doctoral studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. And she has done a great deal of work in mental health, but also going into the Amazon forest and looking at vegetalismo. And particularly, she's going to talk to us about the use of songs, ikaros, during plant healing ceremonies. That was the subject of her doctoral research, the healing power of ikaros, a phenomenological study of ayahuasca experiences. Welcome, Robert, to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And Susanna, are you with us as well? Yeah, we're I'm here. here. Good You're morning. Both here. Yeah. You're both Good here. Good morning. Good morning, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We did it. Yeah, well, thank let's you be- for inviting us. You're very welcome, Susanna. Let's begin by telling, um, by telling our listeners, or you tell our listeners, what is vegetalismo? Mm-hmm. Sure. Vegetalismo, vegetalismo, right, that's the right pronunciation in Spanish, is... Um, um, tradition that is a mestizo, mixed-race tradition of uh, curing and healing in the upper Amazon in Peru. Um, and it evolved from indigenous tribes that were taking out to do rubber uh, exploitation in the Amazon and because they knew, you know, the forest and uh, how to survive in the forest. Uh, and they spent like nine, ten months together, you know, doing cuttings. Um, 
I mean, doing rubber work, right? Uh, they um, they became sick sometimes, right? So they started sharing the knowledge from their tribes about what plants to use to cure um, and uh, cure each other. So some people became specialists in this and developed slowly as you know into this tradition that we know as the vegetalismo. So we are talking about mainly three. This vegetalismo tradition is um, it's uh, still active, you know, in Peru as a medical system, particularly for the poor people. Uh, you were talking about the poor, and this is something that uh, came out from the poor people who had knowledge from their indigenous roots, you know, and were able to apply and be creative about their own health, you know. So if, so, I, underst- if I understand you then, Susanna, what you're saying is that, is that vegetalismo is the use of local plants for the medicines for the people who are working in the forest. Is that correct? That's correct. And what distinguishes this from herbalism is that uh, uh, curanderos, you know, the healers in this tradition say that their knowledge comes directly from the plants. That means that they have ways of communicating with the plants so that they tell them what to use and how to use. Uh, for a particular condition. So you're saying the that, that these these healers they they talk to the plants and they believe they're receiving information from the plants as to which plant to use for the healing of the particular person. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, yeah. You say they believe there there are techniques and methods that they use in order to communicate with uh, with plant species, yeah. And there are two main ones. Uh, one is the use of a, a psychotropic plant, brew, and that is uh, pervasively used in the Amazon, and it is um, called ayahuasca, as you mentioned before. Um, so the ayahuasca brew uh, acts as a... Uh, gate as a portal to access uh, intelligences of other plants and animals. Um, and then also there is the, the process of the plant diet, which is kind of a vision quest uh, where you commune with a plant that is not psychotropic, uh, but is, has a madre, a mother it's called. So in conditions of isolation in the jungle, uh, and also, oh, that's Robert coughing, and yes. of, of a change in your diet, you basically um, spend several days or months uh, in with this plant, drinking it, so that you can um, learn from the plant what this plant has to tell you. So, Does it I, sound esoteric? <laughs> no, let's see if we can get some clarification for our listeners. Are you saying, sure. give us, if I understand you, a vision mm-hmm. quest is when someone goes off for a period of time, you're saying it could be as long as months, Yeah. and, and 
And during this period of time, I'd, I'd like to get clarification from you on whether the person is alone or with, their, with some kind of a shaman or with their, some kind of a guide. But during the time, they're taking various plants, some of which have psych, are psychedelic or have are psychedelic medicine, and some of which are not. And they're doing something that you're referring to as a vision quest. I don't know if our, if our listeners know what that means, so I'd like you to elaborate uh, more. But, but just to answer the two questions, one is when they go off and they're taking they're, they're on this quest and they're taking these medicines, are they alone or are they guided? That's my first question. And then, and then um, you know, the, the, the second one is, what, you know, what is a vision quest? How can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, well, you know, things have changed a lot with in the last decades, right? Like, if I if I think of traditional curanderos and healers, many of them went to the jungle, into the jungle for months uh, uh, on their own without someone guiding them. Their uh, knowledge came directly from the plants in that way, and. Um, in the, I would say in the past forty decades, something like that. This this started like at, by the end of the eighteen hundreds. Okay, to develop. So um, in the past forty years, the presence of a of a shaman, of a healer, another healer with more experience, started to appear, appear to emerge, and uh, more strongly. So apprentices particularly went to the would went to this into this vision quest and had contact um, every day with, or every other day with uh, with the shaman with the elder who came to feed them and also discuss uh, their dreams and whatever came to them. Basically, it's the whole day. You know, they spend the whole day in isolation, in in one spot or around that spot. You don't move that much. You know, and you're fed um, twice a day, very simply. Um, and uh, you you drink your plant. Normally, there are concoctions of these plants. So you uh, they use plantas comadre are normally associated to barks not to smaller plants. Those Some smaller plants also have madres. Um, so the barks, in order to give their properties, you cook them in for, you know, different periods of time in, in boiled water. Susanna, would this be similar to, in our country, going to the pharmacy? Uh, I mean, after getting a prescription from what we call a medical doctor, and then going to the pharmacy and getting pills and taking the pills, is that similar, what you'd say, only in this case it's a shaman and the person is prescribed various barks and various you know, vegetables to eat, which are medicinal? Is that, is that a similar, is that correct? Um, no, not really. I'm okay. talking here, yeah, I'm talking here about... Um, Two processes, and thank you for asking all these questions because it's complex. That's the thing, and I don't want to. Sure, it is very complex. It. It's, it's important, Susanna and Robert, for us to be able, the three of us, 
to be able to to verbalize and, and elaborate in such a way as so our listeners can really understand what it is that you're bringing us from your travels down into these places because the, the practices you're writing about and that you're describing are extremely, as you well know, extremely different from what we practice here, but evidently they're getting cures down there that are, that are working, correct? Correct. That's the extraordinary thing. You know, things so are working. That's why we need you to tell us more. Tell us more about the process and, and, and what you've seen. And Robert, please jump in. Okay. Okay, wonderful. So, we have two processes. We have the process of an apprenticeship to become a shaman, right, that I was describing before. And then we have, and I'm going to go directly into healing modalities because I think this is exactly what you're interested in, your audience, right? That's right. Um, so, I mean, um, people are listening, someone... just as a side note, let me interrupt. People are, uh, some people are listening to this, Suzanne and Robert, and they're saying, you know, is this something we ought to try? I mean, should we be going down there? You know, we, we have these, these, um, these, these uh, echo, uh, I mean, not echo, but psychedelic tourism. We have, you know, people going down there in large numbers now, and some people are listening and they're wondering, should we be going down for things and for cures, or is it too scary, or is it too frightening, or might something bad happen to us? So with that in mind, please, uh, thank you for allowing me to interrupt. Please proceed. Sure, sure. Um, this is a very good uh, remark, you know, that you're making. So also thank you for that. Uh, indeed, you know, with all our interest as Westerners to go down there, you know, there are like, uh, there, there are um, a lot of people going down and also the tradition is changing due to our uh, influence, you know. And the money and all, it, there, there's a lot happening down there. However, uh, there are still good curanderos down there doing work that have not uh, been that influenced by Western culture, you know. Uh, one of the things that is important to um, keep in mind is that um, this is a totally different paradigm of healing and curing than the one than the one that we have developed here. We rely a lot upon what the authority says, which is the doctor, who gives us a prescription that's a pill. So we take that pill trusting that, that what the doctor is giving us is going to serve us. That's we right. Ask, right? Right. We, so, don't ask, we rarely ask any questions. We go to somebody that we call a medical doctor. He or she writes on a piece of paper some medicine, we take it somewhere else to a place called a pharmacy, and they give us this little bottle, and we go home and we eat what's in the little bottle. That's correct. That's it. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in this case, uh, uh, we have to think of another paradigm where, first of all, nature for the people who live in the jungle in uh, more traditional ways, but even people who have been westernized, you know, there are still remnants of this indigenous uh, cosmologies in the, in the way that they live and conceive things. So basically, uh, material, you know, material things, including plants and animals, uh, but also stones and stuff, have a, a counterpart that is uh, spiritual, 
books, you would say, and that is totally alive. There is no separation between those books, those things. Um, so there is sentience for them in in material things. And for us, there is no sentience on an object. You know, we, we don't relate to an object with some, you know, kind of like care because there is sentience and there is some communication coming from that object, right? Let me interrupt and underline what you're saying because this is, this is very, very important and I think it's going to be p- perhaps startling to some people. And that is that we here in the United States and basically in Western culture do not relate to rocks or a table or a rug or as a sentient being or a chair that I'm sitting on here. We don't relate to them as sentient beings. We relate to, to ourselves, to humans, to animals, and perhaps some people relate to trees, to plants as sentient. Some don't. But we certainly don't relate to inanimate objects as as being alive, as being sentient. And what you're saying I would, is... I would hop in here for a moment and clarify a little point there. Thank you. Um, in, in my experience, uh, the the indigenous people, or the, the people who still live in a... in a, You know, Mestizo people are between an indigenous and modern world. And so they're kind of sharing two ways of experiencing it. But I don't think you'll find very often... Uh, indigenous people necessarily seeing manufactured objects as being sources of, of healing or medicine, which is a difference between us and them as well, because, um, you know, most pharmaceuticals are manufactured objects. Thank Just you, like Robert. A or, or, like a desk or a rug. Yes. Right? So for them, like, for example, one of the healers that we're familiar with, the river, a, a geothermically heated river that flows, it's a magical place. Um, the river that flows beneath his center is the major part of his healing work. The trees that, that grow around, the animals that are, that are part of the ecosystem, the, um, the stones, the, the, the geology, the, the stars, it's the, um, it's the natural vital world which has been experienced for 100,000 years by our species as sentient and alive and full of messages and teachings that is like a keystone in the, these healing practices we're talking about. And it's simply traditional medicine. I don't think you could find a tradition on Earth that didn't have that fundamental understanding in it. So I thank you, and thank you for differentiating between their looking to nature and natural things as healing, but not the example that I crossed over into, such as such as a piece of technology, a manufactured like the telephone, and so on. And, and that's not to say that they don't necessarily, you know, see them in in their own way, not conditioned like we are to them. But uh, yeah, the the medicine is not in a manufactured object most of the time. I I don't know, Susanna. Do you know of an exception to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The thing is that the more the more we incorporate new elements in their uh, in, within their cosmology, which is fabulous, you know, like think of the indigenous people down there that are all embedded in nature, right? And then, like, 
new elements from the West start coming in, you know, um, they have this amazing uh, resilience to uh, incorporate elements without destroying their uh, basic beliefs that they get modified and stuff. And I want to say, like, for example, gasoline, you know, when it was introduced too, there there are Icaros um, for, for, for gasoline, you know, that has been described. And then they use also that Icaro for that song, medicinal song, uh, uh, for healing in particular cases, because there is a knowledge uh, and a power in that substance, you know. And we can say, yeah, gasoline is just, you know, um, a natural byproduct, right? Um, and maybe that's why they are choosing them. But then, you know, in their own healing works, they have also in the imagery of healers that we have um, um, interviewed and know of, you know, they have incorporated things like, okay, now uh, I need to do this very quickly. I'm going to take an airplane, you know. Now I need to communicate with this, and, and they are using the cell phone, which are, you know, it's part of the imagery during healing processes for the healer that didn't exist before, but it's part of it. So I'm adding a component here, something else. Now, in your writing, you talk about a differentiation between curing and healing. Would you talk a little about that, about the, about the difference between what we consider here curing and what they consider, why they use the word healing? Robert, do you want to address that? Excuse me. Sure. Actually, they don't use, have that distinction. That's a distinction in, um, in English. I see. Um, yeah, uh, uh, to cure, I, I discussed that in um, our book that's coming out. It's called The Shamanic Odyssey, Homer, Tolkien, and the Visionary Experience. Because um, it, it, um, there is, they're kind of like Venn diagrams, healing and, and curing. They overlap, but you can also see how they're distinct. And curing comes from the Latin, uh, and the um, the goal of curing is to um, to get symptoms to abate, right? To to bring some relief, um, <clears throat> and that of course is a good thing. But um, healing has, which comes from the um, the Germanic side of the English language is, is actually uh, has a different meaning and it, it's to make whole again. And so curing doesn't actually contain implicitly within it the, um, the idea of restoring a system to health, to wholeness. And um, I, I make that distinction because it, it can be that what we've seen in the quest that people have gone on into the rainforest, for example, to try to uh, cure themselves or heal themselves of the HIV virus, the, um, the cure has not happened yet. Um, no one that I know of has found a way working with the Vejitalista tradition to uh, cure themselves of HIV, but they've they've come back with very profound healing about what gave rise to it, um, 
what it means to live with it. They've they've shifted their relationship with the virus from it being an enemy to a, to an ally, a kind of teacher, and um, they're much more content and at peace with their lives now. Well, so um, I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. That in mm-hmm. terms of looking at their at their illness as a teacher and as a way of making yes. peace and rather than as an alien. How does that and affect... sometimes the cure comes as well. Have the, are there cases on record of there actually the cures coming as well? There's one that we, we document... Well, I mean, it's not a rigorous scientific documentation. It's, it's um, more just a, the, the narrative account of the healing of a friend of ours who had um, very severe CDIP, chronic demyelinating inflammatory polyneuropathy, uh, which he got from the bite of a um, uh, rattlesnake, which was at its height of venomosity. So it, and, sort of a, uh, what, what you might call a, a, uh, a bite from an animal-induced uh, form of multiple sclerosis. Pretty much. It, it was yeah. destroying his system. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was in a lot of pain. He was losing his his nerves. His muscles were degenerating. Um, they had thought he had Lou Gehrig's for a while. They, they, uh, Western science wasn't able to diagnose it properly either. And um, uh, Nick uh, actually went down to the rainforest. He was He's part of the Native American church here in the United States. And he went down to the rainforest to work with a different medicine. And there is a certain plant down there that the indigenous people of the rainforest have used for a long, long time, which uh, is has been identified as being very effective in preventing, treating, and um, uh, healing the after effects of of snake bites um, of the same species, the pit viper, and just as venomous. There are very dangerous snakes down in the Amazon, as up here. And so uh, Nick went down, and um, the whole process is described in the book, but essentially the medicine was able to get the toxins out of the myelinar sheathing, the, the myelinar sheathing of his nerves, and literally to release it and wash it out. And Western science could not do that at all. There's just no capacity. And Nick is, um, well, recently on Facebook he posted the, uh, the special boots he used to have to wear because he had no more feeling in his feet, and he doesn't wear them anymore. It's, everything's coming back for him now. So you're saying there, that, that there's evidence that this is not just some form of primitive medicine that we have moved way beyond with our Western medicine and our Western prescriptions, but you're saying that there's wisdom and, and uh, curative powers here that we can learn from and perhaps incorporate into our own culture. Is that correct? And we already did. I mean, much of our cures have already come from Native people. Uh, the basis of modern surgery came from Native people. It came from their curare, which uh, they developed to, for hunting. You know, if you have a monkey way up in the canopy of the trees and you shoot it, its reflex is just to grab and hold on. And so they had to come up with these brilliant chemical admixtures in order to complete 
relax the nervous system or the muscles of the body, right? Once the monkey was hit by the arrow, so the monkey would actually fall down from the trees and you could have some dinner. And so when we found karate, we began experimenting with it and we realized that it was far superior to any of the methods we had for putting people under for surgery. And the basis of modern anesthesiology comes from the rainforest, from the kurare. And so it's already the case, and it's still true. Yeah, it is still true. But the whole race is to save these cultures from extinction before, I mean, not only just in the sense of preserving the, 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 the cultures of this planet, which is really our richness in a, in a very fundamental way, that's wealth, not money. You know, wealth is in culture. And um, we're losing these cultures very quickly because of the incursions into the rainforests of the multinational corporations. But also, a side benefit for us, for sure, of preserving these cultures is um, there are cures down there that we don't know about, and the ethnobotanist Mark Plotkin, um actually thinks the cures for pretty much everything that ails us are down there. Are we going to be able to preserve those cultures, Robert and Susanna, or is it inevitable that the that the incursions that you talk about are going to lead to their extinction? Do you want to address that, Susanna? <laughs> you know, that that's a question that's very uh, difficult to answer. One thing that I always say is, like, shamanism, shamanic cultures, uh, for some way or another, have been resilient. And uh, there are shamanic cultures alive, you know, uh, right now, not only in, in, the, in the Amazon, but in other parts of the world, you know. And they have changed. They are not the same, you know, as they were probably 200, 300 years ago, you know, even more. Um, because they um, they have this capacity of incorporating new elements and then um, and then create a new synthesis, um, but definitely you see a change. You know, when I go down, I have been going down for the past fifteen years down to Peru. You know, to to do research and, and work there, and um, and what you see happening right now is different than uh, we saw. I saw fifteen years ago, which is nothing. You know, it's just you know, a decade and a half ago only. <laughs> um, so you see that things um, have been uh, lost already, you know, or uh, they appear lost. Knowledge that was there, easily accessible, um, you know, through a, an old curandero. You know, those old curanderos are not alive anymore. They're um, dying, you know, and new generations of people who are doing really different th synthesis of, of things, you know, are, are coming up. Um, yeah, so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, it's an open uh, question. So let me ask, I want to ask the two of you the following personal question, which is, what can you, will you share with our listeners of what you two have personally experienced with these with these medicines during your travels. Robert, would you like to go there? <laughs> I was going to offer you the same opportunity. Uh, 
<clears throat> That's a big question. I don't know how to answer that exactly. Uh, I I know that um, uh, what first drew me into uh, knowing these cultures more deeply was uh, a combination of elements. Um, one of them was some remarkable healings that I experienced with them. It, uh, it's when you say I experienced, does that mean you literally... Uh, ingested some of the material and experienced mm-hmm. some. Oh, yeah. of the... oh sure. And yeah, what yeah. benefit? Could you please tell us about the benefit that you that you received? How did it he- heal or cure or expand your consciousness? Mm-hmm. What did you get from it? Well, it does kind of all those things because these medicines work on all the all the layers of of the human being. Um, and one of the ways that these medicines have been found to be to be effective, uh, maybe you could even say very effective is in the treatment of addiction. Um, and um, I had a, a childhood where I grew up on the streets without really having a family. And during that time, I had a lot of issues with addiction. And I managed to clean up pretty well, but there was a lot of unresolved stuff. Uh, and when I, when I began working with the plants, I, I found that I was able to address the um, the kind of psycho spiritual elements and the emotional elements of of the very difficult hard times that I lived through on the streets, um, almost like dealing with PTSD, and uh, was able to release a lot of it <clears throat> to heal my relationship with my father and um, <clears throat> to. Um, have a, a much more healthy, embodied way uh, in in my own being. Uh, it was difficult work, though. I really don't want to make it sound like it was a magic carpet ride. Uh, we don't actually... No one really uses the term psychedelic when you're describing these medicines um, because it doesn't really fit. Psychotropic is, is used... Um, so I, I want to kind of differentiate it from um, psychedelic experience. It, it has some similarity, but it's also distinct. Uh, one Robert, way it's distinct. Robert, yes. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I want I want also you to distinguish. You're talking about uh, ayahuasca here. Are you talking mm-hmm. about that, mixing that with other di- plants for diet, so that people right. know what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we've got are three different modalities of of healing, or we call them the three pillars of vegetalismo. And one of them is ayahuasca, which is the visionary component. And that can um, bring some profoundly healing experience in in terms of of restoring your, um, your mind, your body, your spirit. But there's also a layer of um, purging which goes on in this tradition, where you want to get things out of your body that are in it. And for that, they use a variety of plants to treat people. And um, getting the toxins out of the body to actually purge it is, uh, seems to be a really key component in working with addiction. And, and then finally, there's... 
When you're talking about purging, you mean literally regurgitation or what's called vomiting or puking? It yes. feels like you turn into a human fire hydrant sometimes. It's amazing. Now, I talked to... Uh, you are cleaning out. Yeah. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had Stephen Beyer, maybe it was a month ago, Stephen Beyer mm-hmm. uh, on the program, and, you know, he wrote uh, Singing to the Plants. Yes. And um, he was saying that these uh, that some of these uh, vegetable plants that are used down there are definitely emetics, that they cause mm-hmm. regurgitation, and mm-hmm. that the, the basis of that was that the people, many of the people who lived down there got bacteria in their stomach, and that these plants were, were used as emetics to get them to throw up so that they would get the poison, the, the physical poison, out of their body. It sounds like you're talking about a similar thing, but using yep. the regurgitation for getting psychological stuff out of your body. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's right. that's particularly Susanna's focus. Yeah. Well, what study. happened? Yeah. yeah uh, what happened? That's correct. What Steve Bayer said. You know, that started like that, and then like I think of something. There is no differentiation, and there was no differentiation with it when this tradition emerged. You know, between body and mind. So you say, okay, the bacteria should come out of your body, but you're also touching upon emotional components, psychological components. There is no distinction for them. We do the distinctions. We make the distinctions, right? Um, But say in Takiwasi, Takiwasi is a center for drug abuse rehabilitation in Peru, and I'm going to be joining them uh, very soon in July for, for work there. And I have been there many times. So these people combine traditional medicine from that area, vegetalismo, and work with healers and also work with, with psychotherapists and Western physicians uh, together to treat addiction. Uh, and they have developed then this sophisticated uh, treatment plan where they use uh, uh, plants for purge with addicts during during the whole treatment, but particularly during the first two to three months of their nine-month uh, complete pre- treatment, full treatment. Um, and what they have discovered is that certain plants for purging purge not only certain organs of the body, say, for example, genital area, but also memories, cellular memories, and um, emotional um aspects associated with traumatic events or in that particular area. So, so, there, so the, the, the belief system there is that the purging is not only purging up physical material, you know, matter and, and, and liquid and so on, but that, that act of purging, since they don't differentiate between, the, you know, physical and psychological, that that purging is also purging psychological trauma right at, from the, at the cellular level. Is, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Hmm? Yes. Yes. So the interesting thing, particularly in this center, is that they have identified different plants for, um, to, to address different issues in different parts of your body, you know, particularly, you know, different... Um, organs, intestines, you know, like um, uh, liver, things associated, you know, uh, 
traumatic events that uh, engage the liver, you know, um, et cetera. So uh, this is very interesting, right? <laughs> because yeah. we don't think of those things in that way, you know. We just think of our body also kind of like uh, getting... I mean, we're developing more and more a holistic approach to, to healing, right, in, in this country. But there is still, like, in our minds, a separation between the body as a, as a kind of machine working on its own, you know, in our emotional and psychological states, you know. And, um, and there is a big, big, deep connection, you know, um, the body being an expression of our psyche and our souls. This is at least what I have uh, come to understand deeper in my experience, you know. Susanna, can you share with us, please, a personal experience that you had with any of these medicines? Sure, sure. I can uh, tell an experience um, uh, during a very long plant diet that I did. Uh, it was uh, a full month of uh, plant diet in isolation in the jungle, and um, um, I started having some symptoms when I was doing the the, the diet of uh, herpes. When I was a child and I was about three or four years old, I had uh, corneal herpes. So herpes that was inside my cornea in my eyes. And uh, that... Uh, herpes in the eyes? Yes, herpes in the okay. eyes. Okay, a lot of people don't realize that you can get herpes in the eyes and in the nasal canal, that's right. Yeah, so that's internal, right? It's not external. And what that's it right. does, the herpes, is to just eat your cornea, um, eat it up, right? So that, that, um, that when I was a young child, I got um, a photophobia first, and then I couldn't see anymore. I couldn't open my eyes. And then I, I went through a very rudimentary procedure, you know, in Chile uh, that put some iodine directly in the cornea to kill the, the virus. And um, it was uh, very, uh, the percentage of success of that procedure was really minimal, but it was successful in my case. Um, what, but what happened was that, um, uh, you know, the herpes, like, keeps coming if there are certain conditions, right? I mean, they are, it, it, it's part of your body. So I got, again, the same thing when I was uh, uh, a teenager, but then there were certain um, pharmaceuticals that I could use that were developed that were effective. Acyclovir? Huh? Is it acyclovir? Hello? Sorry, I don't He's asking the name of the medicine. Was it acyclovir, oh. the name of the medicine? The name of the medicine down there at that time was called Herpix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that there were like drops basically that I had to put every hour or every two hours for, I think, a week. So I had a line of friends and my mother and my family, you know, Latin America, right? Like day and night and doing that for me yeah. um, until I didn't have any symptoms anymore. It was gone. But then when I was doing the, the plant diet, you know, and, and uh, in the jungle, in isolation, for some reason I started feeling exactly the same symptoms in my eyes, you know, like you have like little sand in your eyes and you cannot get rid of, of it. And I started becoming very, 
very scared that I was going to have her again, you know, another uh, another situation like this in the middle of the yes. jungle without any yes. uh, medicine around me. And um, I talked to the healer and I said, look, this is happening. I had already all a plan, you know, a plan of how, how was I going to connect with my people in Chile for them to send me the thing. And he just looked at me and he said, you're in a diet process. You know, in a diet process, what you expect is that things that uh, are like this are going to show up. And they, they need to show up in order to go away forever. You know, <laughs> so just trust the plan. And... um and I was dieting uh, five different plants at that time. Um, and we, we had ayahuasca ceremonies. We went down to the center, you know, to do ayahuasca ceremonies once per week. So I went down there. And, uh, and what happened when I was, you know, very strongly with the symptoms during an ayahuasca ceremony is that um, I was able to see what happened in my relationship with my mother and my family, there was something, there was pain and suffering happening at that time where I developed this purpose in my eyes. And I understood that there was a loyalty to my mother, but in uh, that, I, um, that I was experiencing when I was three or four that was very, very, very strong, but I couldn't see life uh, in the way that she was looking at it, because it was too uh, too dark, too uh, uh, hopeless at that time for her, and that my own blindness came out of that necessity of being with her but not seeing the world in that way. Um, uh. It was a really deep, deep physical experience, right? This is the, the way that these plants work. You feel these emotions that are very primary emotions that you forget about. You don't, you don't even, you're not even conscious sometimes when you live them, right? Like come surface, right? You, you feel it in your body. You feel the emotion completely taking you, the cellular contractions, you know, the fear of it, you know, kind of opening up and creaking. I ha I'm, I'm very sensitive with my ears, so I just, like, hear, you know, the creaking of opening in my own body. And, um, and I just remember that ceremony, understanding the complexity of, of love mixed with this other thing and just crying it out, crying it out and cleaning the eyes. The next day, my eyes were shining, big, no symptom of anything. I didn't have anything. I haven't had anything since then, you know, in my eyes. That was maybe um, 2005, seven uh -huh. years ago. Seven years. Yeah, I didn't have to call. Yeah, I didn't have to call anybody to send me anything, you know. It was just that whole process that... Um, it seems that I needed to reappropriate, you know, we own in order to release fully. And I don't know. I mean, it might be that, you know, in some other years under different conditions, I'm going to just make it uh, uh, to come back in my body, the herpes, right? Herpes, right? But, uh, but it feels like in, it feels that a deep healing around that issue happened to me. I feel that way. Yes. 
So, Robert and 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 Susanna, in in uh, in summary, um, what would you most like our listeners to take away from this program and from what you are bringing to us? We have about uh, just about three or four minutes left. We know what's the headlines. What do you want them to have left and say? Gee, this is this is what I got from that, and this is where I want to go for with with what I learned from this program. Robert, do you want to start? Hmm. Why don't you? Okay. Well, <laughs> I would say <laughs> thank you. For me, is I I feel a deep, deep respect for for these traditions that you know are shamanistic, you know, and I'm including also our first people's nations here, you know, and their knowledge for healing. Uh, what I know more is uh, about vegetalismo, you know, because this is the tradition I have been thinking into. Um, I have deep, deep respect for this knowledge and uh, and um, just communicate that the way that we understand things, that we see life, you know, the uh, big ontological questions we have, you know, are very different than the way that people down there see things, perceive things. Um, understand healing. Uh, there is a living. Uh, it for them, us in the First Peoples Nations here. You know, there is a network of living relationships, living beings. You know that are uh, cooperating, sustaining life, um, and and helping to be healing. You know, like be healthy. Sorry for my English. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, so when we, and then also when, when we think, um, for example, oh, I have this condition, I would like to try this, you know, and go down to do work. Think of that. Think that you're going to be facing something that's completely new to you, that probably it's not appropriate for you to go because it's really going to open up your mind, um, blow your brain, you know, um, but if you have the, the courage and the openness, you know, to um, to face very strong emotional things and have the, the support to process that when you come back, you know, um, I would say you can try it, you know, but this is uh, for really, yeah, for really people who, who want to go into a pilgrimage that's risky and different and not easy and not comfortable. I want to to add a note to that, too, that um, um, like in in anything else, uh, when you start looking for something like this, the first layer of stuff that's going to come up is um, you should be cautious about. Uh, There's been a lot of people who've declared themselves as shamans recently, Yes. that um, don't have the traditional training. There's um, there's a lot of money now involved in this world. Yeah. Um, and so one really needs to be quite careful. There are even reports of people dying. Yes, we, you know, we heard um, the fire. Well, thanks mm-hmm. for the warning on that, Robert, as a way of saying that, and to you, Susanna, yeah. you know, that there's a it's lot up. to learn here. It's not for the faint of heart. I want to thank you both very much for being on the program and to remind our listeners that their new book, Robert Tyndall and Susanna Bustos, 
Their new book is called Snake Magic. A recent no, 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 it's not. It's not. We got that wrong. Let me give it the title. The, the The new book is entitled The Shamanic Odyssey. 